Well, this is an unusual evening, I think, for many reasons. You know, last week I announced that we were going to do part two in our study of the kingdom of God as it is described in the prophets. Tonight is the reason why you should never announce what you're going to do. This week there's been a shift and um, several of you and uh, in conversations with our deacons even last Sunday uh, have asked some questions about some things that were happening in our immediate area, particularly in our association that we're a member of, the Tri-County Baptist Association, and have asked that I would speak to that. And I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do it honestly in a roundabout way, in a way that I believe honors the Lord and what He wants us to know uh, and how he wants us to respond as a church. So tonight I'm titling this The Delta and the Kingdom of God. The Delta and the Kingdom of God. You know, as we've studied the Kingdom of God, we have learned several things. One thing that was very, very clear was that the Kingdom of God is not a place, it's not a geographical region. The Kingdom of God is not a people, the Kingdom of God is not the church. The kingdom of God produces the church, but the kingdom of God is not the church. What we saw in our study of the Old and New Testament is that the kingdom of God is an expression of the rule or the reign of God. It is God in action. It's God doing something. And whenever he demonstrates his rule or his reign, we are recognizing or acknowledging the presence of the kingdom. Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It was the central core message that he preached. It was carried on by his followers, and you can read about it, and we will, as we go through the Gospels and in the, in the book of Acts, we'll see how the kingdom of God was preached and taught, proclaimed and demonstrated as his people spread out over the face of the earth. I want to call your attention to a passage of Scripture tonight, two of them, and then we'll look at a third one as we close later. Matthew 21, verses 42 through 43 is the first Scripture I want you to see. And it'll be on the screen as well, Matthew 21, verses 42 and 43. And there is no handout tonight in case you thought they passed you up. It's okay. Jesus said to them, these are the religious leaders he's speaking to. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, Verses 7 to 10, Peter is witnessing, he's the one, he witnessed that conversation in Matthew. He heard Jesus make reference to that psalm. He heard what Jesus said about it, and in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, he says, Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling 
and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so in Matthew, when Jesus said, the kingdom of God is being taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it, who is that nation? It's us. It's you and me. The incredible opportunity afforded the people of Israel while Jesus was alive on earth, that opportunity remains, and it belongs to you and to me. We are that nation that he was referring to. When God is at work, and when God is present, all of God is present. And he has a mission, and all of history is wrapped around his mission. Right now, the people of the United Nations are not calling us up in Wynn, Arkansas, for guidance and advice. But God is more interested in what we are doing in response to him in Wynn, Arkansas, than he is in the United Nations and their deliberations. We are part of the history that is unfolding, that is according to the will and plan and purpose of God. And so I want to talk for just a moment about Baptist work in the Delta. I'm going to move through this quickly so it may feel like you're drinking from a fire hose, but you can get the CD later. In 1541, the first recorded Christian worship service of any kind occurred just a few miles of here outside Park in Arkansas. As priests who were associated with the Hernando de Soto expedition held a mass, and it was right close to us. Baptist work in the Arkansas Delta came much later. In fact, Baptist work, Methodist work, Presbyterian work followed after the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. And then we began to flood into Arkansas. And there's some controversy over where the first church was and where the first sermon was preached, and we're not interested in that. The fact is it happened. And by 1848, there were a sufficient number of Baptists in the state to form the Arkansas Baptist State Convention uh, Convention in 1848. The Arkansas Baptist State Convention was a way of churches, way churches could work together to start new churches in their state. It was a larger statewide version of the local association, and it was controversial. Uh, there were many churches in Arkansas that didn't believe that the state convention was biblical or that it was a good thing and that it was hurtful to true missions as it was taught in the Bible. And so groups of churches would peel off and form their own denominations. And it's happened several times in Arkansas. We probably have more different kinds of Baptists in Arkansas than anywhere except maybe Kentucky. But there we have a lot of different versions and most of them have come out of those groups of Baptists called Arkansas Baptists. In 1917, the Arkansas Baptist State Convention published a little booklet describing the greatest mission needs in the state. And the cover of that, if you go ahead and advance that to the next one, I went ahead and put on the screen. I found this at the Baptist building uh, some years ago, and I had it uh, copied after I came here, and then I sent it to Washita where they could take good care of it. But it was a little catechism. It was a question and answer kind of a format, and it was a way of 
explaining and describing the work of the state convention in 1917. There was an interesting quote as they talked about their priorities for mission work in Arkansas. They talked about two areas that were destitute and desperately needed needed churches. One of them they called the Northern Uplands. We would call them the Ozarks. And they talked about places like Clinton, Arkansas that didn't have any Baptist church. And, of course, now that's not the case. But, um, and so Baptists filled up northern Arkansas, in fact, did a pretty good job of evangelizing that part of the world. But there's another area they made reference to, and I want you to see it on the screen. Go ahead and, and bring it up. The question is, where are the most destitute districts of the state? The mountains of north Arkansas and the bottoms of the eastern part of the state, perhaps. Where do you think the bottoms of the eastern part of the state are? Right here in our pews, that's where they are. Did you catch that? (laughs) In these districts are thousands of people, some of them grown people that have never heard a gospel sermon. They know nothing of Jesus. How distressing. There is great destitution in many other parts of the state. And over the years, churches were started in those other parts of the state. But as as, as far as a plan or a strategy to start new churches in the Delta. It was virtually non-existent. They had a goal in 1917 of starting 125 churches a year in Arkansas. Never happened. I think last year we started 39 in Arkansas, which is pretty good. That's pretty good. That was a good year. It may be the most since I've been in the state for 10, 12 years. They had a goal of establishing a Baptist church in every community in the state. And you know, a community is a very loose definition, but they had a a goal of doing that. They had a goal of establishing a, quote, strong missionary in every association and in every destitute section of the state. A strong missionary was was just as the name implied. They were missionaries. And, And they were there to do mission work in the sense of spreading the gospel and starting new churches. Now, in 1917, about that same time, there was a great movement of people from the south, out of the south, into the urban centers of the north. Historians call it now the Great Migration, as some six million, mostly African Americans, left the south and settled in places like Chicago, Illinois, Detroit, Michigan, and New York City. It deeply affected the South. It profoundly affected those northern cities where they went and looking for jobs and they formed new communities from the South. This process went on from 1917 to 1970, according to historians. But if you look at the numbers, it does not appear to have stopped in the Arkansas Delta as we now have counties that are roughly half of what they were in in the 1940s. In other words, it actually seemed to accelerate after World War II, the exodus and the depopulation of many parts of the Delta. There are counties like Mississippi County where Blytheville is, or Phillips County where Helena is, that are literally half of what they were in uh, right after World War II. Now, the Baptist approach to starting new work just varied from place to place, so I'm just giving you some very broad generalizations, but up until World War II, associations in Arkansas were very active in starting new, new churches. And this is what they would do. They would go out and find a man who was an evangelist. They would call him their missionary, an associational missionary. 
and he would go and typically go to a community that didn't have a church, and he would preach a revival, an evangelistic crusade. People would come to Christ, and then he would take those individuals and other floating Baptists who didn't have a church, and he would take those individuals and help them constitute and form into a church. And that was pretty much what happened right up through World War II. After World War II, churches themselves in Arkansas became more active and intentional about starting churches. They weren't waiting just for associations. And so you had churches like Wynn Baptist Church that started churches right here in Wynn. They would find neighborhoods. And you think that's kind of odd today. We don't, people can drive wherever they want to go. Why would you start a church in a, in a neighborhood? I don't know. Ask Rick Proctor. He was involved in starting East Baptist Church here in Wynn in the late 60s with some others, and they just did it down the road. And so churches became intentional. They became involved in starting new churches, but much of that has changed. Associationalism is older than anything else we do as Baptists in North America. Over 300 years old, it stretches back to the Philadelphia Baptist Association, and and churches have naturally grouped together over time to work together to accomplish shared purposes and goals. But in a typical Baptist association today, the missionary is no longer dealing with the great question of lostness many times. Rather, he has become and forced to become an administrator, an encourager, and a cheerleader for existing churches. He's the coordinator of training programs, the overseer of camping ministries, the leader of mission trips abroad, and a pastor to pastors if he works hard. That's not an indictment or a criticism, it's just a picture of the shift in how we do our work together as Baptists. Also, across the South, in general, associational involvement has declined dramatically. Meetings are attended by fewer and fewer members of the churches. Those who attend the meetings tend to be an older generation who remember a time when associations were vital and intentional in starting new churches. So you see a lot of gray hair. But they're the ones that remember when it was important and when it was valuable to be at an associational meeting. The purpose of the association as a way for churches to work together to fulfill the Great Commission is increasingly, I believe, lost in many associations across the South. Now, I want to address that in our context. Before I do, I want to tell you a story, a good story. It's a revival story. Go ahead and bring it up about the Moravians. And you say, Don, why are you, where are you going? Are you like ADD tonight? You're just all over the map. And, um, and maybe so, but in a good way, because if we're going to talk about something like we're going to talk about, I want to put a context to it. When I came to Wind Baptist Church last year, I came with a very definite sense of call, that God had called me to come to help build a people who would in turn help build the church at large. And that grew out of an uh, activity of my own in the Delta over several years during my time at the state convention, where I was, became intensely aware of the needs in the Delta, up and down the 15 counties or so that are, that are classified as Delta, and then maybe another 14 or so counties that have enough in common with the Delta to be included as well. And during that time, we made appeals. We made appeals to the North American Mission Board, for example, that they would put a national missionary in the Delta who would serve as a catalyst for the starting of new churches and ministries to reach the lost. When they finally gave us a national missionary, they put him in inner city Memphis, which was a lark because there's not a whole lot in common between 
inner city Memphis and the rest of the Delta. Uh, he was a good guy, though, and we hired him away from Nam. His name is Willie Jacobs, and Willie has spoken here in this church, and he'll be here next Saturday as part of our Global Impact Conference. Willie has traveled the Delta and spent a great time in the Delta and shares my passion, the passion that many pastors have, to see lostness addressed in this part of the world. So let me tell you a story about the Moravians, because as I've come and become part of this world and moved our family here and planted our home here, this story is one that resonates with me. Those of you that know me know that for some 25 years, I have been a student of revival and spiritual awakening. And it has been a desire of mine to be wherever God chooses to manifest His presence and to be obedient to what happens in His presence. The Moravians were people like that. In 1722, in the area of Moravia, which is now part of uh, the Czech Republic, or it used to be Czechoslovakia, in this area there was a man named Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Nicholas von Zinzendorf. And Zinzendorf was wealthy, but he was also a strong believer in Jesus Christ. And about 1722, he opened up on his estate an area for religious refugees to come and settle. It was a, it was a town, I'm going to try to say it properly, uh, Hernhut, 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 Hernhut. That's a hoot. And in Hernhut, these religious refugees settled. Hernhut means the Lord's place of safekeeping or the Lord's safety. And these people settled there. And as you can imagine, with people with all kinds of different religious persuasions settling in one place, that they began to debate and have conflict. And boy, they did. Guess what they argued about? Eschatology. We learned that word last week. You should know what it is. It's the study of last things. Stuff like in the book of Revelation. And so they they argued about eschatology. And as they argued and had these debates, Zinzendorf was serving in another town in Dresden, he had an official capacity. He, he, he resigned and he came home and he said, guys, let's get together. And he brought them together and they began to study the Bible together. And they began to see that the scriptures taught a biblical form of community that they were not practicing. And that, that we were called as believers not only to believe certain things, but also to live those things out in community with one another. And so they learned to set aside their different beliefs in order to have true community with one another. You see, they argued even in 1727, because this, this uh, debate and this argument had, was settled over a five-year period. They, they argued, and they came to realize that there was no way that believers were going to agree with one another on everything. But that there was a higher biblical principle that they needed to observe, and that was the principle of community. And working together. In 1727, five years later, these groups experienced the presence of God. They'd been studying the scriptures together and they were forming small group Bible studies, if you will, and they would pray together regularly. They had bands of men that would walk through the community at night and literally pray over their community, singing hymns as they walked through the community. And in August 1727, 24 Men and 24 women covenanted and chose a different hour on a 24-hour cycle to pray. 
And they began praying around the clock in August 1727, 24-7. And it went on for a week and another week and a month and another month. And soon there were 90 different people, seven different groups that were praying together on a regular basis throughout that community. Six months later, there was an escaped slave from the West Indies named Anthony. He came to speak at Harrenhut of the deplorable condition of the slaves in the West Indies. The night he spoke, two of the young Moravians could not sleep as they struggled with a sense that God was moving in their hearts about what they had heard. They learned that you could probably only go there if you were a slave, if you were going to reach slaves, and they were willing to become slaves in order to reach the slaves of the West Indies. In 1732, in August, five years later, the first two missionary, missionaries, Leonard Dober and David Nietzscheman, left Herrenhut on August 25th, 1732. They sailed to St. Thomas. Thereafter, other lands were studied and missionaries were sent. They went to the toughest places under the most severe conditions. Many of them quickly died. For example, of the 18 who went to St. Thomas as reinforcements for the work started by the first two young men, half died within the first nine months. But more, the more that died, however, the more that volunteered to go to replace them. And within 25 years of that prayer meeting, that little community had sent more than 200 missionaries around the world. That prayer meeting didn't stop. It continued nonstop until 1847, 120 years of 24-7 praying around the clock. When you talk to God like that as a church, you are, you are opening up that invisible line between the world we see and the world we can't see. When you begin to pray like that, and you're saying, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth where I can see it, as it is in heaven where I can't see it. And God comes and begins to work. You know, most mission scholars will talk about the modern missionary movement beginning with the Haystack prayer meeting in 1806. These people were going around the world. They were instrumental in the conversion of John and Charles Wesley. They were instrumental in being um, proponents of what became the first great awakening. They influenced generations of Christians who weren't even Moravians because of their devotion to God. With that in mind, I want to talk to you about the delta need and potential. The delta need and potential. In the counties known as the Arkansas Delta, there are approximately 450,000 people. It's where we live. Approximately 75%, and I believe that's a low number, approximately 75% were not in church today or any Sunday. Now you say, well, there are more church members than that. Well, you bet they're church members. But who cares? What matters is not what people say they are. What matters is what they do. And 75% or more of the population of Wynn was not in church today. 75% of the population of Cross County was not in church today. 75% of Arkansas was not in church today. 
And we call that the Bible Belt. We have the highest percentage of unchurched people in Arkansas. They include the poorest of the poor in the nation. They include cowboys and farmers, professionals and criminals, black and white. They are lost and need Christ. Let me give you an example among the poorest of the poor, typically African Americans in the Delta. Willie Jacobs and I have talked about this a lot long before I came to win where we would drive through the Delta and typically outside of an established town there would be another town, another community. Sometimes it had a little green sign, often it didn't even have a sign. And that community often would be made up of people, they didn't even know where they came from, but it'd be, they would be made up of people, African Americans, and those communities can be traced often back to the end of the Civil War when they were emancipated, set free from slavery too afraid to go settle in the towns, they would form these little communities, enclaves, outside of the other Delta towns. Those communities still exist. Some of those communities have no church. And I can go down there tonight, and I can preach the gospel, and people will be saved. And I can go down there tomorrow night and preach the gospel, and people will be saved. And I can go down there every night and people will be saved. You can evangelize people in poverty all day long. But congregationalizing them, getting them into a church where they can be discipled and grow in Christ is very rare. Willie says that some of those communities function more like a West African village than they do a community in the United States. Often in those communities, there's a person of influence who is the person you need to know, the person you need to talk to if you're going to relate to the people in that community. I've talked to some of you about certain areas of Wynn, Arkansas, and you said, you know, years ago, we could tell you exactly who that was in certain neighborhoods here in our city. And so those communities exist. And how do you start a church in a community among people who can't even balance a checkbook and expect them to take care of a building and take care of budgets and all the things that we think you have to have in order to have a church. And if we did, if we did, if we did see God start churches in those communities with the most simple of people, uneducated, who have cousins in Detroit, and they have family members in Chicago. And you say, well, how do you know that? This Christmas, come ride around with me, another part of town. Look at all the cars in the driveway and look at the license plates. Look at where they're from. You say, well, how did that happen? I just told you, it's a great migration, 1917 to 1970. And those family ties have remained strong in many of those homes. What if it happened that God were to come and move among the most insignificant people in North America by man's standard? Could it be like a group of refugees in a little no-place village called Herrenhut in 1727? North America 
is usually left out of the list of the most unchurched nations in the world. But if it was put on the list, North America would rank third or fourth in the world for the sheer numbers and volumes of people who don't know Christ. Third or fourth, that's where you and I live. We have countries that are sending missionaries here. I was in Los Angeles for several years working for the old home mission board. And we were, we were going after pastors in other countries so that we could reach people here. And what if the key to reaching North America was across the street? In an expression of the rule and presence of God. What could he do with hearts surrendered to him who didn't know any better but to go and tell others about him? Now, let me tell you about what's happening in Cross County, or, yeah, Tri-County Association. And I know some of you are worried now. But um, we're, we're going to get done. Um, when I came to the association, I had been the... Uh, had functioned as a state prayer coordinator for Arkansas Baptist for 10 years. That's my passion. I love helping pastors grow in their prayer life. I love helping churches develop prayer ministries. We, we have a prayer committee here. We're slowly doing some things uh, to grow in that area, but we have a wonderful group of people that pray here at Wynn Baptist. And that's my passion, and I want to encourage people in their prayer life. And so when... I first came here, I was asked, where would I like to serve? And I said, well, do you have a prayer coordinator? And they said, no. And I said, sign me up. I said, I don't know when I'll get to it, but sign me up. And uh, I didn't know that they also had put me on two committees. Uh, they put me on the credentials committee, and they put me on the administrative committee, which provides oversight for the work of the association. I didn't find that out till this past August when a pastor wrote a letter complaining about another church. He wrote it to the moderator, and according to the bylaws of our association, when a complaint is made about the doctrinal position of another church, that complaint's supposed to be brought by the moderator to the credentials committee. The credentials committee researches it and then brings a recommendation to a board, which consists of all the pastors and one layperson from each church. And then that board should bring some kind of recommendation to the association. All that to say that the complaint that the pastor had was that there was a church in our association where the pastor had taught a Bible study. He hadn't done anything. The pastor had taught a Bible study where he was teaching through the book of 1 Timothy. And in the course of his teaching, he came to the phrase that the qualification for an overseer or a deacon was that he be the husband of one wife. And he said he did not believe, based on God's word, that that automatically disqualified a divorced person or divorced man from serving as a pastor or deacon. This was Three Trees Baptist Church, Three Trees Cowboy Church, which was started and greatly helped by this association. They've been members of the association for four years. But another pastor complained about the Bible study, the Bible lesson, and wanted them to either be corrected or put out of the association. That's when I learned I was on the credentials committee. As we worked through the questions, we met with the pastor who had the complaint who was accompanied by other pastors from the association. We asked them questions and listened to their concerns. 
At the conclusion of our conversation, the Credentials Committee called for a special meeting of our board, our associational board, and we came to them with a report. We made two recommendations, two motions. The first motion was that Three Trees Church continue to be recognized as a member in good standing of the association. The reason for that was that we did not believe that a church's position on who they ordained should be a criterion for membership in the association. The Southern Baptist Executive Committee, which publishes the Baptist Faith and Message, has refused to take a position on that issue and said it's a local church decision. Every association in Arkansas has taken that same position, saying it's a local church decision. We already have churches in this association, at least two that have pastors who have been divorced. We have other churches that have deacons who have been divorced, already ordained. And so we believe that it was in the best interest of the association that Three Trees Cowboy Church continue to be recognized and that this not be a requirement or condition of membership in the association. That motion failed. Three Trees Cowboy Church, for all intensive purposes because of some mistakes that were made, some, some uh, decisions that were made early on, um, they were put out of the association. They were considered a mission church who would have to reapply for membership. We discovered in the process that the association had not followed their own bylaws in bringing three trees into the association. And so on a technicality, they were put out. Our second motion was to say this, that Three Trees Church should not be, and I can't remember the exact wording, but that Three Trees Church basically should not be restricted or removed from membership because of their position on ordination of divorced persons. That motion also failed. So we left that meeting uh, just over three weeks ago with a cowboy church that was running some 350 people that was number two in the association in baptizing lost people. That were reaching people who were absolutely broken in their history, in their background, in their marriages, who needed Christ. We took that church and said, you can't be part of us. This past Monday night in our annual associational meeting, on my own and without telling anybody, as far as the, the credentials committee, I brought another motion to the association. Don't you just love guys who do that? <laughs> and this time, I just simply brought the motion again. I said that um, I specifically moved that Three Trees Church, that the association reinstate Three Trees Cowboy Church as a member in good standing of the association. And I went through the whole business again because I believe that only the association in their annual session had the right to put a church out. And so I gave the same rationale, the same reasons that I had given to the executive board, and I argued that the issue was church autonomy. That churches have the right to determine for themselves what God's Word says about many matters, and they need to be faithful and true to what they understand God's Word to teach. I argued that the pastors who disagreed were forcing their interpretation onto the other churches in the association. 
Um, and so when I brought it to them, to the, to the uh, gathered association, uh, my concern was that Three Trees Church be reinstated and that we not make a particular issue like that become a criteria for membership in the association, especially in light of the fact that we have other churches that have already practiced some form of that. Three Trees has not done anything. He just taught a Bible study. That motion failed also, 26 to 24. So Three Trees Cowboy Church is no longer a member of the Tri-County Baptist Association. After that particular meeting, uh, I resigned my positions in the association. I cannot support or enforce as chairman of the Credentials Committee what I was being asked to enforce. It's very important that if you're going to work together as a group, group of churches, that you say, here are certain things that we must believe in common. And right now, historically, we have said that is the Baptist faith and message. And particular applications of the Baptist faith and message and how we conduct ourselves in our churches and how we govern ourselves and whether we have elders or pastors or leadership teams or where we, whether we have closed, closed, or close communion or whether we... You know, I could just go on and on. You just name it. Pick one. Whether we wear coat and ties or we don't have coat and ties. Whatever the case is. That is up to the individual congregation to decide. As your pastor, I want you to know that the decision I had made um, was on principle. And it had nothing to do with whether I agree or disagree with Three Trees' position on ordination. It had everything to do with whether or not I believe they had the right to figure that out for themselves in order for us to work together as churches. Next steps. In the book of Acts, when the church encountered opposition, they did something that a good running back always does. When he hits a block, what does he do? A good one. You don't watch much ball. <laughs> or you haven't seen a good one in a while. <laughs> what do they do? They hit that guy, what do they do? They spin and they keep going forward, don't they? They don't let it stop them. We, ha- we serve a God who is, who is still on his throne He has a plan, he has a purpose that he wants to fulfill in the Delta. My hope had been that through our direct involvement in the association, which is not over by any means, is that we might be able to work with other churches to start new churches in eastern Arkansas. I want to share a scripture with you and then I want to close with three questions and I'm going to ask you to close in prayer tonight in some small groups, and I'm going to ask you to pray over these three questions, okay? Here's the scripture first. In Romans 15, verses 18 to 20, Paul says, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me. In word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient, in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Lyricum, 
I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. Three questions. First, what is Jesus wanting us to do in the Delta? What is Jesus wanting us to do in the Delta? We know what he wants us to do in Zambia. We know what he wants us to do in South Asia. We know what he wants us to do in Vancouver, British Columbia. We know what he wants us to do in Washington and Wyoming and places where we have formed other mission partnerships. But what does he want us to do right here in eastern Arkansas? Second question. Who are the unreached peoples of the Delta? Who are they? Paul wanted to preach the gospel to those who did not know Christ. People who were not having someone go to them and share the gospel with them. People who were being truly oppressed by the devil in every way imaginable. We haven't talked a great deal about spiritual warfare here, but one of, the, one of the manifestations of spiritual warfare is through the structural things that you see happening in a community. And when you see unrestrained poverty and people who have no basic social skills and life skills, when you see families that are fractured and broken, you see people who don't have a clue what you're talking about when you talk about the gospel. I would suggest to you that that is evidence of a great battle that is underway. Who are the unreached peoples of the Delta? And last of all, could God use the peoples of the Delta to reach North America? Could we see a movement with the impact of the Moravians in our generation? Wouldn't that be cool? I don't believe it's an accident that you're here, that I'm here, that the decision was made Monday night that was made. I'm not making a decision. I'm not asking you to make a decision. I'm just asking you to pray. And to pick up these three questions and to see what he says, to see where he might lead. For you as an individual, he might tell you to go out in the middle of nowhere and talk to somebody about Jesus, like he did with Philip in Acts 8. Some of you praying together may experience something of what the Moravians experienced, something of what they experienced in the Haystack prayer meeting. A group of you may be praying together, and like Acts 13, the Holy Spirit could speak to the group and say, take these two and send them around the world. I've got things for them to do. I don't know what he has in mind. I don't have a prescription. But we need to talk to him about it. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you to get us some groups, okay? If you're by yourself, if you just get with somebody. We're not going to do this for a long time, but we're going to take a few minutes. And um, I'd love for you just to designate somebody in your group to pray for you as a group. But look at those three questions. Talk about them for just a moment. And then pray over them, would you? Would you pray over those three questions? And ask that God would lead us and guide us as a church in what may very well be an open door. And not not a negative, but a plus. We'll close our time by singing together. When we get through praying in groups for a period of time, David's going to come and he'll lead us in worship. And we'll close singing praises to our God. If you have a decision to make tonight, you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Or you want to talk to someone 
about what it means to have a relationship with God. Or you just need someone to pray for you. As we pray in groups tonight, I'm going to ask you, encourage you to come. I'll be down front. There'll be other pastors here down front. We'll be happy to pray with you.